Hi there, and thank you so much for tuning in to Asking for a Friend, a podcast that covers all those topics relating to sex, intimacy, and relationships that you might feel a little too embarrassed to ask about. I'm your host, Katrina Buffard, and I'm a clinical sexologist, psychotherapist, and sexuality researcher. Just a warning, this podcast may contain conversations of a sexual nature, and so if there are little ones around, it's best for you to turn off and listen later. This episode is sponsored by Desire, South Africa's leading sexual health and wellness store. Very sneaky little discount. Stay tuned to the end of the episode. When it comes to wanting sex, we all want to want it. That's what we've been told we should do. But that view of sexual desire is far from most people's reality and actually leads to people feeling that there's something wrong with them if they don't want sex as much as their partner does. So today, I'm going to be chatting to Dr. Christopher Fox, a psychosexual and relationship therapist practicing out of Melbourne, Australia. In the episode, we're going to talk a little bit about how low desire is not something bad and how we need to rework our notion of desire within relationships in order to have more satisfying sex lives. So Chris, you're joining me all the way from Melbourne. Are you in a lockdown? Are you not in a lockdown? What is life like there in Melbourne at the moment? Life in, in Melbourne at the moment is slightly joyous. We had a snap five-day lockdown here in Victoria um, with suspected UK strain um, in the community that had transferred from quarantine hotels. So we were released from lockdown at far midnight on Wednesday night. So people in Melbourne are feeling a little bit joyous because, of course, the minute the Premier announced lockdown, we all went, oh, no, not again, after spending 111 days in lockdown last year. So Melbourne is sunny today, I must say, and anybody who's ever been to Melbourne can, will understand that we can have four seasons in one day, and at the moment we're having summer, so it's quite pleasant here at the moment. Uh, I, I know this. I've been to Melbourne. I've been to visit you, and uh, I'm acutely aware of the four seasons in one day. So currently at 5 o'clock in the afternoon there on a Friday, it's, it's sunny, but that could change by 8 o'clock this evening. It could change at 8 o'clock this evening. It's not, though. It's currently 36 degrees, and we're expecting another 36-degree day tomorrow. So it's likely to be about 25 to 28 degrees throughout the night. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so that definitely requires air conditioning, and sex may become a very, very, very sweaty affair. Sex without air conditioning would become a very sweaty affair, but in my life, air conditioning is a requirement for just breathing, really. I hate the heat. <laughs> or just living at this point. <laughs> just living, just living. I, I believe the world should be 22 degrees the whole year through. Oh, a nice balmy 22 would go down well, right? Uh, it's also an, it's exactly. also a relatively conducive temperature for sex to take place. <laughs> it's a very good temperature for sex to take place. Yeah, absolutely. Chris, um, so for, for my listeners, um, we've known each other for a very, very, very long time. You, you have been in my life since I became a sexologist and since before I became a sexologist and are one of the reasons I continue to be a sexologist. And when, when I was thinking about doing my podcast, gosh, now over gosh, over a year ago, uh, there were definitely a list of people I wrote down that were non-negotiables for me featuring. And you were one of them and you don't have a choice. You have to feature on my podcast by association. So, um, so, so it's just so awesome. We get to chat and it's about a topic that I know 
I know everyone wants to talk about. I mean, in my practice, this is kind of the hot topic. What, what about in your practice? I'm going to say the topic which we haven't named yet is the hot topic. In actual fact, I say to my students, and I'm sure you may have heard me say this over the years, that, you know, mixed libido relationships are my bread and butter. They're the mixed libido relationships, I think, are a given in, in people's life and people's sexuality. So, yes, this, they're, 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 they're common. They are very common. You, you actually just said something was so interesting. You said it's a given, and I think that might surprise a lot of people. Um, people's expectations when it comes to sex are ra- rather skewed, we could say. Um, and the expectation around desire, I mean, w- where do we go wrong when it comes to our expectations around desire? Well, firstly, I'm going to sound like a a therapist and say uh, it's the fact we have an expectation. And by the very definition, expectation is never going to be met. We need to have goals. If we want to achieve things, we need to have goals. And I don't know we can have a goal around libido. Libido is, is, is such a strange thing. I mean, we live in a society where we're sent messages about having lots of sex and having great sex and we need to be having sex all the time. Yet, and, and one of the first things I ask my, my clients when I'm working with them, when are you going to have sex? You know, do we have time to have sex? And so we have these messages coming at us that that we need to be having sex and we all should have a high libido. But just the simple, how do we fit sex into our lives becomes a a question that we have to explore. And I think, you know, this this idea that we have high libido is just, yeah, libido is is a very shifting thing. Expectations in life are never a good thing, but particularly around sex, because libido can change very quickly. I mean, depending on our stress levels, there are so many influencing factors to our desire for our libido. So, so why then? Why then do we have such an issue? Okay, is that so? So you know, Cosmopolitan magazine, Glamour magazine, all these, all these glossy magazines. Shame, I, I, I don't want to name and shame, but these magazines do. They they put out these these kind of punchy punchy titled articles like five ways to the hottest sex of your life or you know um 10 ways to make sure your partner is satisfied in bed so it's constantly putting out the expectation that it should be hot it should be satisfying it should be this and of course it should be all of those things but should is a very dangerous word and so what happens when when we have differences uh, discrepancies and and as you used the word earlier mismatches when it comes to desire in a relationship how does that affect a couple it affects it, it i think it affects the couple in a number of ways but I, i'm going to take a step back for a moment and just talk about libido that it, it's a continuum you know it, it, i think you captured that we have these messages coming at us about you know the way to satisfy your partner how to have the best sex we have this idea we've all got to have a fantastic sex life and a high sex drive but not everybody does. And, and libido is a, is a continuum. It, you, people think, oh, we're, 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 we're going to have fantastic sex. We're going to have sex all the time. And it's like, yeah, it's not going to happen. And so it's, it's about understanding that we need to talk about and communicate um, about our, 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 the, the sex we want. Um, that, you know, when we are in a relationship, and I'm going to say, I honestly believe most people live in relationships where there is mismatch libidos, where one partner wants sex more often than the other partner. And it comes down to our ability to communicate. There is nothing wrong with having a low libido. 
just because you have a high libido doesn't mean that you're better at sex or that you're in the better position. And the person with a low libido is, is not in a good position. And of course, what I see in my practice is people come in saying, I've got low libido, fix me. Or my partner has low libido, we've got to fix this. And it's like, there is nothing to fix when you have low libido. It's perfectly normal for some people to have a low libido. And in actual fact, the, the thing that I do with my clients is when I'm working with a couple where there's mismatched libido, I often look at the, the high libido person and ask them, how are they going to change their libido? And I think that's a really good question for the listeners to think about, if, particularly if they're a high sex drive person. If we're asking the low libido person to increase their libido, why is it the high libido person decreasing their own libido? And then that's where we start to understand how, how we've created this idea about sex drives. That is so fascinating because you get so many people saying that there is a problem with a person and a, a partner in a relationship having a low libido. But I guess I'm, I'm wanting to explore with you why perhaps there's difficulty in calling it low or high, because it seems for me anyway, that if you say low or high, you're kind of valuing high and pathologizing low. And what you've just said is so fascinating because it speaks to this idea that actually maybe we need to find a common ground between this low and this high where neither is, is, is a problem where neither is, is, is uh, something, you know, that should be pathologized. I'm going to pick up on, I don't think the, path I, I, I don't think we should be pathologized. I'm trying to get away from the word should now, Katrina. Um, we, I don't think pathologizing libido is a good thing. I'm supporting that. And I don't also, though, I'm going to push here and say, I don't think it's necessarily about finding a middle ground. I think what I'd like people to hear, it's about how we negotiate um, our engagement with our partner. And so it's not just about one person's needs or the other person's needs. It's about the relationship, which is how two people interact. And so it, it's not even necessarily about finding a, a, a middle ground because it's okay sometimes to have sex more often than you want. And it's okay sometimes to not have sex, and sex as often as you want. And so, <clears throat> again, it's not necessarily about finding the middle ground. I talk with my couples about how do we balance our relationship because it's about a balance, which doesn't mean there's a middle ground. Sometimes one person may have to do more than the other. And if we think of any team or any group environment, we don't do things equally. We do things according to our strengths. And there, there's give and take. And I think that's really important in a relationship. That, that it's give and take. It's, it's, it's more than just that idea of finding a middle ground. It's that idea of how do we meet each of our partner's needs. That is so important um, because two different people will have two different sets of needs and two different mm -hmm. people will, will sit at any given point somewhere on this continuum that you mentioned. And yeah. I mean, everything from the way that the wind blows to, you know, what you've been through that day will affect where you're sitting on that continuum. So when you talk to couples about this continuum, how, how, do, you, how do you explain it? How do you describe libido and desire to them on this continuum? Well, I actually, well, I, I don't describe what desire and libido is. I ask my couples to tell me what they're talking about. And, of course, invariably we often get to where we're talking about, you know, wanting to have sex. And then I say, well, what is sex? 
and it generally comes down to them penetration and it's like penetration is the goal of our of your sex lives and I let that sit there because I think sex is such a broad concept but of course and, and now I'm speaking when I'm speaking here I'm speaking in a very heteronormative way but we live in a society that's heteronormative and promotes penis in China sex and sex is so much more than penises and, and, and vaginas and vulvas. There is so much more involved in, in our sexuality. And sometimes it's about exploring just the idea of sex. So one of the things I, I explore with my couples is what is this sex that you're desiring? I, I think, again, I'm, I'm going to take a step to the side. And I hate doing this, Katrina, but I do it all the time. I know. So maybe I don't hate doing it at all. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to take a step to the side and go, but it's also about... Um, you know, why we want to have sex. You know, and, and, and again, I'll ask your listeners to just think about why they want to have sex um, because that's a, a really key thing because this sometimes explains why there is a difference in desire for sex. The why. Hmm. The why. The why. Why do you want to have sex, Katrina? Hmm. Well, we could now quote the study um, which was one of my favorites, that found there were 247 reasons why we have sex, everything ranging yes. from because I was cold to yes. I wanted to get close to my partner. So you yes. can ask me why I have sex, and tonight I could say it's because I was cold, and tomorrow I could say it's because I wanted to be close to my partner. So I guess the yes. why changes all the time, but in a broader sense for most couples, most partners – the why, if we're talking generally, is going to be often related to things around intimacy, closeness, affection, feeling wanted, feeling desired, uh, getting pleasure, you know, more broadly. But then, of course, that specifically on that day and that time could change entirely. It could. And then I would ask the question, so why is intimacy so important? What is the message that you receive when you're being intimate with your partner? What is that connection about? Why do you need to connect with your partner? And, of course, then I ask couples to consider if you're receiving a message of connection in a different way, what would that mean for you? Because if, if you're sitting there and you're saying to me, you know, sex is about connection and, and your, part, your partner is doing things to connect with you, well, will that change your desire for sex? And sometimes our desire for sex in a relationship is because maybe other needs or the need that, that, that sex is meeting isn't being met in other ways. And here I want to make it clear, I'm not saying that, that sex isn't important. Sex is extremely important. And sometimes we want to have sex for the sake of having sex. And I'd like all the listeners that know me to know that I didn't swear or use vernacular there. We have sex for the sake of having sex. Uh, but often when we're, we're dealing with, with these issues in relationships, it's, it's, the, it, it's not as clear cut as that. Because, of course, the reasons we want to have sex can be so varied. I often tell the story, and, and strangely enough, we're doing recording this podcast, and, and the client I'm going to talk about, and she knows I talk about her. I was, I was sharing with her this week about how I, I talk about her and her, her former partner. They came to me. There was mixed desire issues running. She required sex at a much higher rate than he required sex. 
And through the process of therapy, we're exploring, you know, why do you have sex? And for her, it was about validation. It was about being attractive, being desired, being wanted. And that's an okay reason to want to have sex. And for him, it was about connection. And of course, their narrative, their relationship narrative, went, when we were first together, we had sex all the time. And then we moved in together and it just stopped. And in, in exploring what happened in there, what was happening in their relationship, it just stopped because he had his connection. All he wanted to do was to connect. And once he connected, he didn't need to have sex anymore. And of course, what used to happen in their relationship, she'd become quite upset and frustrated. They'd have an argument. And the minute they'd have an argument, he'd then instigate sex. And of course, he had to instigate sex in order to reconnect, to, to, to build a connection, to help build a connection again. And then sex would dry up again. And so, you know, I'm using that to illustrate just that idea that in this couple, for one partner, you know, it was about desirability, about being wanted. And for the other partner, it's about connection. And when that partner received the connection message, that partner was no longer interested in sex. Of course, that left the high libido partner going, what about me? Where's my sex life? I need to have sex. So this idea about why we want to have sex, I think, is really, really important because it does influence our desire and our libido for sex. I'm really grateful that you shared a, an example because I think so many people need to relate to something rather than just kind of the theory and anecdotal theory behind it. Um, and there are so many stories like that, you know, whether it's a, a same-sex couple, whether it's a heterosexual couple, um, th there are so, so, so many couples who will relate to this difference in desire and not being able to understand the dynamic that takes place between them when it comes to their sex life. I, I was just wondering, you know, it, it comes up a lot for me in, in the work that I do, particularly when I'm helping um, women um, who are struggling to want sex. They'll always say to me, you know, I want to want sex. But then they'll also say, but if I never had sex ever again, I'd also be okay with it. And I want to know from you, one, if those are common statements that you hear, but two, how do you go about addressing, um, you know, just from a maybe educational point, how do you go about addressing statements like that or challenging statements like that? Why do we have to want to want sex? <laughs> That's very hard to actually say, people. Why is this so important that we have to want sex have to want to want sex it's like that and that's where i'd start why do you want to want sex why would you want to want to want sex and now i'm just adding the wants to it everyone why would you want to want to want to have sex and it's it's it, i just find that fascinating because if you don't want sex you don't want sex and of course then it comes back to because my partner wants me to have sex or society tells me i should be having sex and it's like well Maybe they're the issues that, that we explore because it's okay to not want to want to have sex. And I think, yeah, let's just, I, and I think we, not we as therapists or, or, or educators, but we as a society maybe stop and start thinking about this idea of wanting to have to have or having to want to have sex. Like, what is this about? Where does it come from? Why do we insist on perpetrating a lie? Sometimes, you know, 
I'm, and I'll class myself and I'll happily share with any listener, well, with every listener in this case, I have a high sex drive, but sometimes I don't want to have sex. Why should I want to have to have sex? It's okay to not want to have sex, people. It's okay to not to want to have sex. Uh, that, yes. that is so, so important. What I will often explore with my clients is, is again, is about the why, um, but also about the, the what, is the dynamic, the dynamic between two people. And this is very often, for me, one of the, the kind of, uh, we could say, origins of that, of that distress around desire is the dynamic between two people in the relationship. So the people, the, the partners in, in relationships who are communicating, who talk about their sex lives, who can say, you know, not tonight, my darling, I'm, I'm just not into it. And, and the partner who, who's receiving that no doesn't take it as a, as a total rejection. It's just a, I'm not into it right now. Those couples are able to navigate desire quite successfully if I could you you know call it like that and and they're not the ones coming to see us for therapy but it's the it's it's the couples who are struggling in the dynamic between them where there perhaps is difficulty with communicating and where they're feeling one is low the other is high and that's a problem I always talk to my couples about how it's the the gap between them the, the low and the high perhaps that actually is the issue it's, it's not necessarily that one or the other has the issue, but it's that gap between them. And as you said earlier about the negotiation of, of, of why we have sex and also when we have sex, but really being able to communicate about our own sexual needs um, and being able to understand that sometimes it's not all about us and that we do have to, to be able to meet our partner's needs sometimes and vice versa. And I think my approach to therapy with Miss Bachelor Beatles is very much about the dynamic between the couple. And, and there's a couple of really interesting points you've raised. Firstly, the you know what I often hear when I'm working with these these with well with these couples with with couples with Miss Bachelor Beatles is that there's often a pursue a distancer dynamic running. One's pursuing the other and the other is rejecting or pushing away. And and the way I explain it, I, I use my hands as hand puppets and, you know, they're talking, I want sex, I want sex, and the other one is saying no. And then the one saying no disappears and the one demand sex is running around trying to demand sex and eventually they disappear too and suddenly there's nobody instigating communication in the couple at all. They're, they're both hiding from each other. And I think that's the extreme situations for couples um, with mismatched libidos, but it's this idea of communicating sexual needs. And this then raises how do we talk about sex? Because, of course, as therapists, I mean, and, and, and educators, as sexologists, we have great um, vocabulary that we can use, and we often resort to correct vocabulary or anatomical vocabulary. But, you know, it, how a couple talks about sex, because how are people taught to talk about sex? We're not. We're taught about penises and vulvas and vaginas. But we're not taught about how to have pleasurable sex or how to communicate about sex or, or how do we explain how we like to be touched. And for a lot of us, our understanding of what we like when we're being sexual is based on trial and error. 
And so th this whole conversation about what it is, you know, communicating about sex in itself can be problematic for a lot of people because what is the language? And again, I, I use the example of the couple where one partner is saying, I like sex really hard, yet their partner hears that is they like rough sex. I don't like doing rough sex. Now, I, I, I'm going to say rough sex is not necessarily hard sex. But if you don't have a shared understanding around what you're talking about, you're going to hear different things. And again, this captures this, this space between the couples, the, the dynamic and how they're communicating and what they're communicating about, that it, it becomes so important in the work that we do because it's exploring what's happening for them and, and, and what they're actually talking about. So then let's, let's delve in a little bit, I think, to what takes place at the beginning of a romantic relationship and why couples should not, again, I'm using the, the word should, but in a, in a more positive way, I suppose, they should not try and get back to the sex they were having at the beginning of the relationship or expect that sex will be like it was at the beginning of the relationship. So let's talk a little bit about sex in the beginning of the relationship what is happening there, you know, neurologically or physiologically or psychologically that makes it so exciting and so good, uh, you know, according to the average couple? Yeah, the average couple, I think every couple, I don't think you have to be average. I think every couple experiences an excitement in the beginning of their relationship. Most people call it the honeymoon period. And in many ways, that's a really good way. It's a honeymoon. Everything's going perfectly. But of course, um, Morin talks about in Neurotic Mind, it's a period of limerence. It's, it's, and and a, a limerent state or, or limerence is neither one or the other. You're neither single nor you're an established couple is the way that I explain. It's in this time that we often become focused on our partner. And we become focused on our partner. And I think for many people who've experienced relationships, we can all recall at the beginning of the relationship, we often forget about our friends and our family and even our work and everything becomes about our partner. And I often explain, you know, we're so focused on each other that everything seems to work really well. And it's we, we enter into a period of symbiosis. And, and that, that's exactly the word I use. We're, we're so attuned to each other that things just work. And of course, we're, we're trying to get to know each other and we're seeking pleasure and we're having fun and we're having sex all the time. And at some point, life has to return to how life is. And we have to start attending to the work meetings and working back and we have to start attending family gatherings and we have to catch up with our friends and, you know, it's my friends and, and their friends and we're balancing the friends out and suddenly we have no time to have sex and we're never having sex and why can't we have sex like we used to have sex? We used to have sex all the time. You always wanted sex, but now you're always tired and suddenly we have a relationship crisis building. And I think that idea of, of, you know, get back to how it was at the beginning or, or looking at the beginning of a relationship, you know, couples come into me and say, the two things I hear quite often is we have a great relationship except for sex. And I'd like to come back to that if we could, Katrina. And then the other point is, is that in the beginning of the relationship, we used to have sex all the time and now we don't. And with one couple, I said, you have seven children that all do three activities a week. There are two parents. You're running around 21 times in a week where are you possibly going to fit sex into your week? And they looked at me and went, oh, we didn't think about that. I said, well, maybe kids do one thing a week or 
they do two things that are close together and we re rearrange their lives. But that's just, a, an, I mean, again, seven children is, is, is a big example. But, of course, thinking about what we do in our lives is really important. We can't necessarily work a job and then come home, cook dinner or have dinner and, you know, unwind and then want to have sex before going to bed when our body knows it's time to go to sleep. You know, the timing of sex is another thing that I often get couples to think about because having sex just before going to sleep, your body's trained to go to sleep when you go to bed. Why is it suddenly going to come alive and suddenly be aroused and, and want to engage in, in this really active activity? It wants to go to sleep. So this idea... If I can interrupt you, it's actually something that yeah. I, I tell couples to stop doing. I'm like, stop that. Stop having sex before you go to bed. <laughs> Not a good idea. I actually advise yeah. couples to have, if they can, obviously children permitting and life permitting, to have sex before they have dinner. You know, so yes. if it's like six or seven o'clock in the evening or the kids have gone to bed, go and be intimate again. When I say sex, when you say sex, we don't mean penetrative sex. We mean no. sexual intimacy, being sexually connected with one another, you know, bringing pleasure to one another. That doesn't have to mean orgasm. Um, again, because if you're going to leave it up until the last thing of the day, if you've got seven children, I mean, even just that thought is turning me off. So having seven <laughs> children, that would turn me off in wanting sex because I, I would imagine being so exhausted and my mind being in so many other different places. And then, you know, you've still got to clean up from cooking dinner. You've still got to plan meals for the next day. You've still got to do the laundry. Where is their time? So the timing of sex, as you mentioned, is really, really crucial. And I think maybe if I can, I just wanted to just touch briefly on yeah. scheduling sex. I think a lot of people are so anti this idea of scheduling sex because, as you know, everybody comes to us and says, oh, we just want sex to be spontaneous. Well, sex is never really spontaneous because we'd always have to plan for sex. Even at the start of the relationship, you're planning to see each other. You're shaving your legs. You're putting on cologne. You, you know, doing your hair. You're planning to make it happen. You're organizing a time. Trina, I want to take that back even. I want to take that back even a step further and say, and get people to think about you wake up at a certain time, you have breakfast at a certain time, you shower at a certain time, you go to work, you have morning tea, you have lunch. People, and now this is where I often get people thinking, most people poo to a schedule. <laughs> Our bowel movements are often tied to a schedule. People don't realise that. People say to me all the time, no, I just go when I need to go, and then I send them away between appointments and go, now you pay attention to when you poo each day and come back and tell me it's just a random act. You know, we have all of these schedules in our lives and then we expect sex to be spontaneous. And it's like, nope, 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 not going to happen. And, and I also say that idea of having sex before dinner, you know, there comes a point in people's lives, and here I'm talking about when they're 70, 80, and yes, people at 70 and 80 can still be sexually intimate if they, they choose to be. You know, you, you can't have sex before dinner. You can't have sex after dinner because you don't have the energy in your body to possibly process food and to be sexually aroused. So, again, this idea of, of, of scheduling sex and when you have sex, not having sex late at night, Maybe, and I say to couples, when you schedule sex, you can do things such as say, look, Friday night, we've got nothing gone. How about after dinner, we put some time aside for us? Or before we go out to dinner on Saturday night, how about we just spend an hour for us? There's time, it doesn't have to be scheduled every Saturday night at 8.30pm, we're going to have sex. 
that's not the way to go. But, you know, I think, yeah, we, we need to think about when we're trying to have sex as well. Okay, so Chris, then when it comes to a much more realistic view of sex, okay, research shows yep. us that couples who are together for a long time, who've been together long term, they actually report higher levels of sexual satisfaction. So while people focus on the beginning and wanting to go back to how it was in the beginning, actually, what, what research has shown is that the, the longer couples are together, the more sexually satisfied they are. But as I need to caveat, and we just spoken about a little earlier, communication is the key there. And, and we could say, you know, communication is lubrication. That is really what is going to lead to a great sex life. But how can couples navigate you know, sex once they've been together a long time, once they do have kids? Is it all about scheduling? Is it all about communication? Is it all about expressing their sexual needs? Is it all about making sure masturbation is happening as well? What are the different elements that go into it? I think the answer is communication. Couples who report a higher satisfaction with their sex life also report a higher satisfaction with their relationship. And the other aspect they also share is that they have a connection and communication running. And it's this ability to communicate. You know, when when children are added into the equation, um, you know, we we often get out of habits, I think is the way that I'm, I'm going to place it. You know, this, for, for a lot of couples, it's about pregnancy and then it's about raising a child. Not every couple. For example, I adopted my son and I was a foster parent, so I, I didn't have the, the pregnancy side. I, I had a child that came into my life. But, of course, then it becomes focused on that, that child and people get out of the habits of having sex. And, and then, of course, you know, the kids get older and it, it becomes difficult. The other issue that I often talk with couples where children are involved, particularly young children, is skin time and skin contact. When we have children touching us, hugging us, giving children hugs all the time, cuddling children, you know, nurturing children, we spend a lot of time touching people. When a partner then comes home and says, give me a hug or let's go and have sex, could I please just have a moment to myself? I've spent hours with this child cuddling and holding them. You know, my skin time has been completely used up. And so I think this idea of children and and timing and there there are so many factors there, which is why I say this is, is such an important part of the work that we do because it's often helping couples to understand what's going on for them. It, it, it's not a simple, you know, make my sex drive higher or make their sex drive higher or, or get us having better sex. I say to my couples all the time, I can get you having the best sex ever in your life, but these are the conditions that you have to agree to. You will only see one family member or friend once per week and you have to make that choice. You only can have one child in your life and that child can only take up two hours a day every day and of course I, I literally propose this as the as the, the proposition to them if they want to have brilliant sex because we have to have the space and time in our lives to have this mind-blowing sex and I think it's great if we can arrange our lives to have mind-blowing sex I'm saying it's I'm not saying it's not impossible yet we also have to consider all of these other factors that are involved so this idea about what it is we're dealing with 
again, I want to bring us both back to, as, as we keep coming back to, it's about the relationship and how we, we do our relationship with our partners and what that looks like most importantly. Absolutely. And, I mean, if, if sex was something that, you know, if great sex was something that just happened, if it just happened and it was spontaneous and varied and novel and fun and it just happened and we had all the time in the world for it, you and I wouldn't have our jobs. So, no, you know, wouldn't. we wouldn't. I mean, we'd probably be lying on a beach in Thailand together sipping pina coladas. But, you know, we also probably wouldn't because we wouldn't be earning the money from doing the work that we do because so many people need our help when it comes to sex and wanting better sex. And I think that's also something that I try to to reframe in people's minds. I don't want to, I don't want to try and you, you to try and think that you have to get to a place of having great sex every time you have sex, but just to a place of having sex that's meaningful, that's satisfying, that's connecting, that's pleasurable most of the time. Because again, coming back to that why, sometimes you're just going to have sex because your partner wants to have sex and then you're happy it's done and then you can go to sleep or you can start making dinner. So again, I think that why is so, so important, but it also, you, you were speaking about touch time, which is really, really interesting is almost being your, your bank account is almost really, really low when it comes to how many withdrawals have been placed in terms of touch. So yep. what do we, what do we do then when, you know, you've got one partner saying, oh, well, every time they hold my hand or every time they come in for a kiss, they obviously want to have sex with me because when I hear that, my, my therapist brain is going, wow, okay, sex has become a really, really distressing, unsafe space for you where, where even affection equals sex. And so it, 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 even affection becomes an unsafe space then in the relationship. And again, we know this comes down to communication, communication, communication. But I mean, when, when affection feels unwanted, then sex is definitely going to feel unwanted, which means we're definitely going to have difficulties between a couple in, in the amount of sex they're wanting and the differences between them. When I'm presented with that, I do a lot of work with my couples on re-scripting, so developing a new script around what intimacy is and intimacy, intimacy looks like. And so I, I, I actually work with a couple to, to re-script, to reframe and re-script what intimacy looks like so that it, there can be intimacy without sex and then we build to sexual or, or sensual intimacy, and then we build to sex and how these, these ideas fit together and how they can exist in their own. You know, and again, here I'm going to talk about, and I want to make clear, firstly, before I go to where I'm going to go, I want to make clear it's not always the male or the penis owner who has the higher sex drive. Sometimes it's the vulva owner, the, the, the female, the woman in the relationship who has the higher sex drive. Yet for a lot of women, heterosexual women in relationships, you know, the erect penis equals the man wants sex. And I also spend time with, with my, my heterosexual couples, you know, exploring that idea because, of course, an erect penis does not equal arousal. An erect penis, you know, men get erections because we're scared, because we're bored, because we're tired. Uh, we get erections because our body is just making sure the hydraulics work. So those nighttime erections are, are, are effectively the pre-flight check. It's our body checking that the hydraulic system's working. We are not horny when we get a nighttime, a, a sleeping erection. And men who wake up with erections aren't waking up 
up with an erection because they're horny. They're waking up with an erection basically because their blood is full, putting pressure on their prostate gland, which is a, which which increases our stimulation. But it doesn't mean we're actually horny. And I actually get couples to think about heterosexual couples to think about that. You know, and here's a really good question for everyone to think about: How do we know when a woman's aroused? And people will answer because she is lubricated. And so I then go, so when is a man aroused and ready for sex? And, of course, I get a blank stare. And here I ask people to think about men's production of pre-ejaculatory fluid or pre-cum. Now, evolution has had an effect here. Not all men produce pre-cum. Some men produce more pre-cum than others. Yet it's that idea of pre-ejaculatory fluid because that's about assisting with lubrication. So it, it shifts the focus. The erection doesn't represent sexual arousal. The presence of pre-ejaculatory, pre-cum, you know, is more likely to, to indicate that the man or the penis owner is ready for penetration. And again, I, I just ask, ask listeners to, to bear in mind that not all men produce pre-ejaculatory fluid, and that's an evolutionary effect. But of course, it, it's asking you to shift your focus away from the erect penis equaling sex. That is what um, the wonderful Emily Ligoski, you know, talks about a lot in her book, and I reference her book a lot, is arousal non-concordance for anybody who's seen me use that term on social media or or reference that in my in sessions. That's what Chris is talking about. He's talking about arousal non-concordance. Just because somebody has an erection or is lubricated does not mean they want to have sex. They want to have sex when they say they want to have sex. So misinterpreting those physiological responses as he's initiating or she's interested is really unhelpful in the relationship dynamic again. Um, and I guess you were speaking at the start about rescripting, about what is intimacy, how do we develop sensual intimacy, how do we develop sexual intimacy? And there's so many layers of intimacy in a relationship. And when I am working with couples or I'm working with an individual client who is struggling with their wanting of sex, I'm looking at what does intimacy mean to you? Because so many people will say, well, intimacy is having is being sexual or having sex. And I challenge that, obviously, because intimacy is so much more than that. And if we were to, you know, really break it down, if, if I look at the word, it's, 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 a real, it's a real seeing into one. It's into me, you see. And I guess for any couple, intimacy needs to be understood as many, many different layers, not just sex. And connecting sexually doesn't just happen when there is sexual intercourse or penetration taking place. One of the questions I want to just touch on quickly before we can um, speak to many, many other things is same-sex couples and, and levels of desire. So are same-sex couples impacted in the same way that heterosexual couples are? Is there a difference? Is, sex, is sexual desire experienced differently? Two things that I work with or, or, or two, two phenomena that, that I've encountered in same-sex couples, firstly in, in gay male couples, the, again, this idea that, you know, I'm a man and I should want sex all the time. Well, why doesn't he want to have sex all the time? He's a man. It's like, well, again, not every man wants to have sex all the time. But then in, in, in the gay community, um, there is a lot of social messages. It's sexualized. There's a lot of sexualized social messages um, which puts pressure on people to have sex. Um, similarly, um, within the, the lesbian community, um, then, and, and I have friends who, 
who often used to talk about lesbian bed death. And I used to spend a lot of time dispelling that myth that it's not just lesbian bed death. I think bed death happens for straight couples, for gay couples as well. But but there are these social tropes, um, social means that have developed around with, within same-sex attracted communities um, around the, the different meanings of sex. So although there may be some similarities, there can be some uniqueness as well. And I think it's really about just talking to our clients about what is happening for them and what is happening in the relationship. Um, you know, th this is, is understanding what's, what's happening for each partner, I think, is, is the cornerstone of, of a successful relationship. I, I absolutely agree with you. And again, it comes down to communication, to being able to express our needs, our wants and desires, and to be able to understand our partner's needs, wants and desires, and trying to move away from this perfect sex model. You know, yes. trying to, to not expect sex to be 10 out of 10 each and every time you are sexual, you know, not trying to move away from this idea that sex has to be outstanding and ultimately satisfying for both people. Perfect is not good. We should never aim for perfect in anything that we do. As we know from a psychological perspective, perfect is quite detrimental and it's also quite unobtainable. So when it comes to sex, what should we be aiming for? I'm going to say good enough sex. Sex only ever has to be good enough. It's great if we can have better sex and great sex, and it's okay for us to have good enough sex. And, of course, good enough sex is something that we can um, define by each couple. So there, there is no, no, no definition of what is good enough sex. It's about it's good enough for that moment. It's good enough for that couple. It's good enough to achieve what needs to be achieved. And when we start looking at good enough sex, we take a lot of the expectation out of sex and we start having the sex that we want as a couple or as a relationship rather than the sex that we expect to have because of some social message. So I think that idea of having good enough sex is really, really important. Yes, absolutely. Good enough sex, not perfect sex. Perfect sex doesn't exist. Uh, and again, if it did, we'd be out of a job. Um, so, so then for, for, for people who are listening, who perhaps are feeling, you know, that the, the difference in the desire for them and the relationship is causing issues. And obviously they're not seeing us in therapy, but what, what tips, advice, um, information could, could, could you share? And then maybe I can add to that could perhaps get them started on trying to navigate this area. Are there any practical things that you can suggest? I mean, we obviously have spoken about timing. We have spoken about needing to focus on, um, you know, sex that is not just penetrative sex. What are some of the things you think would be helpful for listeners to know? My first stop is always communication. And when I talk about communication, rural relationship communication, I'm not talking about just words. I'm talking about listening, active listening, listening for a purpose, listening to understand. And when we listen, we also have to demonstrate that we've heard. And that means paraphrasing, putting to our own words what our partner has said. And of course, this helps us to build connection. This helps us to build trust. This helps us to build rapport. And when we start experiencing connection and trust and rapport, we might be more receptive to other things happening in our relationship. And, of course, 
when we build trust, we're more likely to allow ourselves to be vulnerable and to have sex means to be vulnerable. So, you know, I, I think the practical thing that I would say, it's about the communication first and foremost. And hey, let's get rid of this idea of perfect sex and sex having to be about penetration and the orgasm and, you know, that, that whole orgasm ejaculation process. And I, I just want to add in there, you know, women's orgasm is, we, we say, lasts between seven and ten seconds, and men's orgasm ejaculation lasts between four and seven seconds. And we put all of this energy into the orgasm ejaculation process for possibly ten seconds of extreme, extreme pleasure. What about focusing on the process of getting there and we make that the focus of pleasure, the focus of fun, the, the, the moment of connection and not focus on that end goal of 10 seconds? I, I always say to clients, journey, not destination. You're missing out on so much if all you're focused on is that destination that you, you're hoping to get to that you may or may not get to because some people can easily get to orgasm and some other people cannot during, you know, um, partnered sex. You know, levels of orgasm are much higher during masturbation than they are during partnered sex, especially for women. Um, but if you're focusing so much on getting to that destination, you're missing out on all the good stuff. You're missing out on being playful, having fun, being curious with one another, exploring, finding out things about each other you didn't know. Oh, you're missing out on so much of it. So I guess, again, communication is key, but it is challenging, right? Because this is a language we've never been taught how to speak. Having that conversation around sex is often really difficult for couples. So I will often say to them, use something that you've listened to, you've read and say, hey, you know, I listened to this podcast episode today and they were talking about how important communication is in the relationship for sexual satisfaction. What do you think? Because often couples don't have the words. They've never been taught the language of sex or how to speak about it. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's a topic filled with shame and stigma, you know, and taboos and, and discomfort. And how would you recommend the couple start talking about sex if this is something they've really never done? They do it, but they don't speak about it. I, I like that idea of, of using a podcast or an article or using this podcast or an article, something that, that you can help facilitate the conversation. And, and I'd also add also, <clears throat> you know, this is what I refer to couples as a big conversation. You need to make a time say, hey, I listened to this podcast and they raised some really great points about, you know, sex in the relationship. I'd really like to have a conversation about it. Can we have a conversation about it tomorrow night after dinner when we both have time? Because it's also about both partners or all partners being on the same page at the same time. If you've listened to the podcast, maybe your partner wants to listen to the podcast. Maybe the partners want to have a summary of the podcast. But, of course, it's, it's, it's a great way to start the conversation and also remember your partner has to be on the same page at the same time. And, again, it's about understanding and so it's about engaging with listening and demonstrating that, that, that you're listening. And so if, if you find it embarrassing, say, hey, this is actually really embarrassing. It's okay for it to be embarrassing. It's not an easy conversation to have. Most certainly. And I guess for anyone listening who struggles with that conversation, start really small, really, really small, you know, just expressing your 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 needs and wants to your partner, such as, you know, when you kiss me, it feels so good. And, you know, I really love it 
when you kiss me here or when you kiss me there, that makes me feel excited to be with you. Even just starting really small with something like that to express what you need and what turns you on is, is another little way to just slowly put your toe into the water of communication around sex. Chris, I, I, I have a question from a, a listener. Um, the question says, my partner, this is a, this is a, a, a woman, and I, I gathered from the message she's in a heterosexual relationship with a man. My partner thinks that good sex is having sex often because that's what his friends tell him they're doing. So the expectation is that the expectation is that we should be having sex a lot because his friends say they're having sex a lot. What do I, what do I do? How do I handle this? I'm going to take us back to Sex in the City. And I think the, the characters in Sex in the City, being women, address this beautifully because, of course, they identified that, you know, we often sit around talking about sex, but does it really happen that way? And I think the series over the years that have played really captures that those ideas at various times. And here I'm saying people often talk about having sex a lot, but are they really having sex a lot? So the Australian Longitudinal Study in Health and Relationships, which runs every 10 years here in Australia, uh, <clears throat> one of the questions they explore is how frequently couples have sex. And what they discovered from the first um, edition to the second edition, so 2003 to 2013, is that we'd gone from 1.3 times, an average of 1.3 times a week, down to 0.7 times per week over a 10-year period. In actual fact, the average number of times Australian couples, or not Australian couples, Australians were having sex, was less, and in nearly half of what they were having 10 years previously. The, 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 the next um, edition the, of the, the survey will be 2023, um, so in a, in a couple of years' time. And it will be interesting to see what has happened to the rate of sex. So people often talk about having sex a lot, yet they're not necessarily having sex a lot. And so I, I think I'd, I'd say take that with a grain of salt because what people say and what people do can be quite different things. Absolutely. Um, and I think often when, uh, you know, heterosexual men are in a group together, there may be some slight exaggeration of sexual experiences and sexual prowess um, because of the association between sexuality and masculinity. Um, yes. I mean, but that's a whole other podcast topic. <laughs> that's <laughs> that a whole get... different conversation. Whole different conversation. Okay. No, that's really, really interesting. And yes, I agree with you. Take it with a great, take it with a pinch of salt because what people say and what people do is very, very different. And I wish, I wish that we could get far, far away from this idea of a number to equate to sexual satisfaction. Because again, research after research after research study has shown us that the the factor that correlates the lowest to sexual satisfaction is frequency. So the number of times you have sex is the lowest predictor of how satisfied you will be sexually in your relationship. It's not, it's not about how many times you're doing it, but what you're actually doing when you're doing it. And maybe that, that helps me just to make a quick point. You know, throughout this episode, we've been speaking about sex. You and I are not talking about simply penetrative sex. There are so many ways to be sexual. Um, I suppose it's actually quite ironic. I'm doing a radio interview in an hour about foreplay um, and about the importance of foreplay in a relationship. And I mean, I wish we could move away from this word foreplay because I think it kind of, it, it, 
it's, it's like saying you have to have a starter before you have the main. And if we could just look at being sexual or sex as something that we do whenever we do something that brings about sexual pleasure. So I guess it's just my, my ending thought on this. And are there any thoughts that you want to kind of finish off with or anything else that you want to share with my listeners before we wrap up? I'm going to share something that is just totally off the wall and oddball. Of course you are. We talk about, of course I am. We talk about low libido as the opposite of high libido. There is actually two words that capture the meaning or being the opposite to libido, and it's mortido or disturdo, um, two Latin words. And imagine saying, I have mortido. <laughs> rather than having, I have low libido. And if we had to walk around saying, I have more libido, I think we would stop with the diagnosing of low libido as a problem. It's, a, it's part of life. And, of course, it's okay to have low libido. And that's the message I want every listener to come away with, is that it's all right for somebody to have low libido. This is not a problem. It's how we work as a, as a relationship in, in managing our desires and our wants and our needs an excellent point to end on and you've taught me something today you schooled me again you know it's been happening for the last <laughs> decade or so so i'm thrilled that you're still teaching me things never heard of those <laughs> words before and i will be adding them into my vocabulary with my clients in the coming weeks <laughs> so chris the, the the final question i ask all my guests is in the in all of the work that you've done in this field especially around obviously desire differences in couples what's been the most surprising thing for you i think the most surprising thing has been learned, and, and I'll, I, I think the most surprising thing for me is learning that every couple is so different and that it's really just working with where the couple is at and what they're wanting to achieve is the most important thing that we can do as sexologists and as therapists and educators. Listen to the people we're working with and, and be guided by what's happening for them not what's wrong with them, but what is happening for them. I'm glad you emphasized that last point because I think that is so, so, so important. So where can people find you and the work that you do? People can find me in Australia. We, I run a director of a psychosexual relationship therapy practice, Sex Life Therapy, sexlifetherapy.com.au. And we have therapy both in person in Melbourne and we do online therapy using Zoom with clients as well. So come along and check us out. And if you're interested in studying psychosexual therapy, if you are a therapist already and would like to study psychosexual therapy, I am the acting co-director of the Sexual Reproductive Health Program at the University of Sydney, where we have the Masters of Science in Medicine specialising in psychosexual therapy. So you can also get training, and that program is fully online as well. And, and I can vouch for that program because that's where I met Chris and that is where I studied and it's what led me to doing this podcast today, actually, or basically, yeah, a decade later. Chris, um, I honestly could have ca carried on this conversation for many, many more hours because I think it's a topic that we never really finish we get to the end to when it comes to a discussion about there's so many different elements and, and facets to this topic, but I've 
love chatting to you today as I always love chatting to you. And so I'm really grateful you gave up your time on your Friday evening, um, as sunny and beautiful as it is, um, to, to speak to me and to tell my listeners about what you know. Thank you very much, Katrina. And I hope everybody has a healthy and pleasurable sex life, whatever that may look like. This episode was sponsored by Desire. Desire believes that sexual health is not just about the latest sex toy, but about using products to improve one's overall sexual health and well-being. For 15% off, use the code FORAFRIEND. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to this podcast and continue learning about some incredible and fascinating topics that we need to know more and talk more about. You can subscribe and follow this podcast on your favorite platform. And if you've enjoyed this episode, I'd be grateful if you would rate and review it. Do you have a question you'd like to ask for a friend? Reach out to me via my website or Instagram, and I'll be sure to include it in an upcoming episode.